Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome back to Consequence of Sound. I'm Editor-in-Chief Michael Rothman, and in this episode I'm speaking with Moby about his epic record collection, or rather, the one he's about to sell. Yes, the legendary producer has paired up with Reverb to sell every single record he's ever owned, and he's giving 100% of the proceeds to the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, an organization that spent over 30 years dramatically changing the way doctors treat chronic diseases such as diabetes, heart disease, obesity, and cancer. Among the singles and albums for sale are Moby's personal copies of nearly every record he has made throughout his career, including rare, mint condition, and signed albums. What's more, there are also hundreds upon hundreds of 12-inch singles that he originally used during his early years as a DJ. In fact, many of the singles in this collection, which largely consists of techno, house, and hip-hop releases from the 80s and 90s, feature handwritten markers that Moby added to the records to a system during his DJ sets at legendary underground New York clubs like Mars, NASA, and The Shelter. So listen ahead as Moby waves goodbye to his collection with one last walkthrough. With regards to your records, how did you store them? Did you have a particular order to them? Uh, that's an, a good question. Um, <laughs> my storage system, a lot of it was a result of DJing. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is in the early days when I first started DJing, it was like, what, 1984? Yeah. Because I'm old. <laughs> um, and I had to sort of like catalog or categorize everything based on genre and almost like where I was playing and when I was playing. And in a weird way, even though I stopped DJing with vinyl a while ago, that you know, sort of cataloging system kind of stuck with me. So it was, yeah, largely by by genre and subgenre, even applying to like punk rock and new wave and industrial and folk music and country, like everything had its own sort of like vaguely subjective genre sorting. Did you have like any Excel spreadsheet or something like that with all the, the, the running list? No, it was all just in, um, <laughs> and this sounds so unglamorous, like I want a better anecdote. It was all just in really cheap Ikea shelving. Oh, yeah. yeah that's where I keep them. <laughs> um, there's those, like those white 12-inch by 12-inch Ikea shelves, like for vinyl. Yeah. They're flawless. Like they cost nothing. I'm not shilling for Ikea, but... <laughs> You know, yeah. and now my question is like, I have all these like white Ikea shelves that used to hold vinyl and I'm trying to figure out what I should do with them. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to ask that if, uh, you just have these empty silos of just, uh, I guess you could put like little knickknacks in there or something. When you looked over all of them and were there, were there some that were, that you just, you had to hold on to, or are you getting rid of literally everything? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, at first there was. Yeah. Or there were, you know, there were like, I was like the the ones that I had, you know, some vinyl that I'd had since high school that I'd listened to a million times that I really loved. But at some point in this process, I kind of just decided that it was almost too heartbreaking, like in a Sophie's Choice sort of way to like save some and not others. So I just decided to literally get rid of everything. In fact, I just found um, in my studio the last few pieces of vinyl that um, 
I'm going to be sending through to Reverb. And um, it, there's a couple in particular that, like, it, it honestly almost is physically painful letting them go. Like, there's uh, the first two minor threat 7 inches that I bought in D.C. in 1982. Oh my god! <laughs> and I'm like, can't I just or, or like I have a Joy Division flexi disc? Oh my god! <laughs> um, and the first three or four Mission of Burma singles, like these records that I bought in high school that I just loved, but I'm like, nope, they all everything everything has to go because yeah. <clears throat> you know once you save one, then you're saving ten, mm-hmm. and in a way. This might sound obscure, but I sort of employ what I think of as the CBGB's criteria. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, you know, and I started going to CBGB's in the late 70s, early 80s. And when they announced that they were closing, my friends and I were all like outraged and heartbroken. But then we kind of admitted to ourselves we hadn't actually been there in 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so. We're like, well, why are we heartbroken about it closing when we haven't supported it in the last 10 years? And so I'm <laughs> employing the same criteria for my vinyl, which is I can't hold on to it if I haven't actually played it in a long time. Yeah. And so that's why it's, it's, all, it's all going away. Were there some that, you were, that even surprised you that you had totally forgotten that you had? Uh, yeah, there's some really weird... <laughs> Like, I mean, of course, there are, you know, thousands of house music records and hip hop records yeah. and techno 12 inches. And, but there were just some that I just don't remember buying. Like, honestly, the strangest one is Spinal Tap Christmas with the Devil. Oh, my gosh, that's great. <laughs> and I was looking at this and I was like, how did I end up like I was very happy that I bought it. Yeah. But honestly, until I sort of saw it when I was going through all my vinyl I hadn't even remembered that that record existed like I might have the only copy of it I'm not sure oh my gosh that's (laughs) awesome did did you um did you also like forbid yourself to like not listen to them while you're going through them so that you wouldn't have any more attachment or did you actually put any of them on while you were kind of going through them there yeah the only ones um because I had uh like an old Techniques 1200 hooked up to a mixer. Mm-hmm. So while I was going through them, I did occasionally put on like an old house music 12-inch or an old hip-hop record. Because like some of the vinyl, you know, it's easy enough to listen to on a streaming service. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and of course, vinyl purists would punch me in the face for saying <laughs> that. But I'm like, I'm like, you know, if I'm in my car and I want to listen to Brighter Later by Nick Drake, having the vinyl doesn't really help me. No, no. no. Um, but some of these old house music and hip-hop records, like, I have no idea, like, once I've gotten rid of them, once I've sold them, I don't know if I'll ever hear them again because they're so obscure. Like, I doubt that anyone has ever put them on a streaming service. Does that give you any anxiety? Uh, I try to think of it. Like, <laughs> if I'm trying to be, if I'm aspiring to enlightenment, I try to see it as just sort of like an example of impermanence. Mm-hmm. You know, like, everything we love eventually goes away. Yeah. So I'm like, why not, like, be a part of that process and, you know, help an organization I really care about? 
Yeah, no, totally. I, I, one of the things I was wondering was you just written your memoir, uh, Porcelain, which is great, by the way. And I wondered, was there like a similar purging that was there that you just you put everything on paper and now you're looking at, you know, the vinyls, which definitely represent a huge, huge chunk of your own history, your own personal history. And I think vinyls itself are very much like almost like a scrapbook of our own history as it is. But did that prompt you to maybe say, I don't need all these vinyls anymore? I think so. Yeah. Um, and also informed by over the la- I mean, in the course of my life, I've moved quite a lot. Mm. But over the last, I don't know, 10 years, I've moved four times. And every time I move, like for some reason, I'm too stupid to hire a moving company. So I do all the moving myself. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so it's like the packing the boxes. And so I've moved. Every time I move, I find myself packing boxes of dusty things that I had either forgotten about or I know I'm never going to use again. Mm -hmm. So in this process of like carrying, packing boxes and carrying boxes, I just sort of decided it's much easier and more expedient to just get rid of stuff if you're not ever going to use it. And so I've pared things down a lot. Like the only thing I've held on to really is books and art and my passport. That's what I was going to ask. Know, like, <laughs> there were like clothing-wise, I, I was out the other night, and a friend of mine said, wow, you must really love that sweatshirt, because I see you wearing it all the time. I was like, well, I only have three sweatshirts. <laughs> but that's why good, would though. I need more? Yeah. Like, why do I need more than three sweatshirts? Like, you know, they anything more just feels kind of, like, gratuitous. So it's definitely that process of moving and just, like, getting rid of stuff, especially if when you're getting rid of stuff, it's not going to a landfill, but Mm -hmm. like the times that I've moved and I get rid of lots of clothing, you know, it goes to goodwill. It goes to Salvation Army. So like there's benefit being created hopefully for other people. And especially with it, like when I sold all my equipment a couple months ago with reverb, it's the same thing. Like I'm putting, whether it's vinyl or equipment, putting it out into the world generating money for the physician's committee for responsible medicine and finding a good home for these things that I still sort of care about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It really seems like a win, a win-win situation or actually like a triple win. Like I have a cleaner house. Yeah. People get to have equipment and vinyl that hopefully they'll love. And this organization I love gets money. Yeah. No, it's, it, it totally is. I, I, I just uh, recently moved also, and it, I agree. Like, I, I was very, um, <laughs> it's interesting, like, because the same sort of thing happened with me, whereas I had movers, but for some reason, I just didn't, I don't know, I just didn't trust them to, with the vinyl, so I was doing them all myself. Just going up the stairs, I think, like, the sixth or seventh time, I was like, I really, really do love these because I'm. I don't know. I mean, this is a lot of work to keep bringing these. And yeah. it's, it's just it's it's such a pain in the ass. But yeah, there is something really liberating about just that that sort of minimalistic, no possessions sort of thing where you could literally just pick up and go and not have to worry about leaving anything behind. And it, there, there is something very, very um, uh, enjoyable about that. <laughs> um, yeah, and it and it becomes sort of addictive. Like, yeah once you start getting rid of stuff, like I'm now like, what's that quote? Oh, I forget. It's an old quote about like some old emperor was heartbroken because there are no more worlds to conquer. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> it's Alexander the great. Uh, that, that, that I think, he, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Like, 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 or 
yeah, Alexander the Great, someone, and he wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of feel like, this, I feel the same way, except I have no more stuff to get rid of. Yeah, yeah. Like, I go through my house, and I'm like, what, I, there's nothing left to get rid of. Like, I've, I've pared it down, and so I'm like, tiny Alexander the Great in the opposite <laughs> way. Like, I'm just sad that I don't have more stuff to throw, to, you know, to sell or get rid of. Well, you still tour as a DJ occasionally. Is it now everything just on hard drives for you, or are you just? I mean, when did you stop? Uh, you know, the analog approach for it, or do you even still do it? I mean, well, I, I mean, I tour as little as possible. I hate touring. Mm-hmm. Um, like I really will do everything in my power to never go on tour again as long as I live. <laughs> um, it's just the world doesn't need another middle-aged guy out there. You know, like trying to like pretend he had the relevance that he had 20 years ago um so but the dj stuff now i mean if i play live or if i dj it's almost always for you know like a fundraiser for a politician Mm -hmm. or a a charity that like and i switched over from vinyl to usb sticks or hard drives when i had this experience i guess it was when like 12 years ago or 10 years ago, I had gone to Europe to DJ, and I flew it. One in two women wear the wrong foundation. Which one are you? Get on the better-looking side of those odds with Il Maquillage. Using AI, Il Maquillage virtually shade matches you to the perfect foundation. Their foundation has over 50,000 five-star reviews thanks to its luxe lightweight formula. And with 50 shades, there's a flawless finish for everyone. Take the Power Match quiz to find yours at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. ...to Brussels, and I was standing at baggage claim, and my records didn't come through. Oh, God. And I started panicking, and all of a sudden I realized, like, if I'm on tour and playing guitar and your guitar gets lost by baggage handlers, you go get another guitar. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're DJing with vinyl and the baggage handlers lose all your vinyl, you go, you have to go home. Like there's, you, yeah. it's, and at that moment I was like, I will never tour with vinyl again because it's super heavy. And if you lose it, it's gone forever. Yeah. Yeah. That's Which is part of what makes it precious. Like there's, there's definitely, especially with the older records, like there's a unique quality when you can't get them, on Beatport and you, you know, these super obscure Chicago house records. I mean, it's, a, it's appropriate that you're in Chicago right now because a lot yeah. of the records I'm selling would definitely come from there. Oh, I figured. I figured. Yeah. And I, I, I would not be surprised if uh, a great majority of the people who do pick up the records from Reverb are going to happen to be in the Midwestern area for, uh, for sure because they'll probably recognize most of the artists that are in there. But, um, mm-hmm. You know, going back to the collection for a second, um, do you do you happen to remember the very first record you ever bought, and was it in the, is it in this collection? Yeah, the first record I ever bought was in mid seventies. Um, a friend of mine and I had been walking home. We'd been playing in a park, and we'd been walking home, and he found a five dollar bill, <laughs> which at the time I, mean, I was nine, I think he was ten. This was the mid seventies. Like none of yeah. neither one of us had ever seen that much money in one place at one time. <laughs> and because he was magnanimous, he gave me a dollar, like out of the five dollars that he found. So he kept four. He gave one to me. What a guy! Um, my my mom drove us to this really low rent discount store 
because we were, this was in Connecticut, we were on food stamps and welfare. So I we went to this store called Bradley's. I don't think it exists anymore. And I bought Convoy by C.W. McCall. Nice. It was a, a seven inch. And um, it's worth listening to because it's, it's such an odd, remarkable country western song because it's almost like a hip hop song, but with spoken word done by like a gravelly voiced old hillbilly. Mm hmm. So, yeah, so Convoy by C.W. McCall was my first ever record, and I'm pretty sure it's it's in that the bulk of records that are being sold. Oh, my gosh, that's so cool. That is very, very cool. Uh, what is uh, What would you say is the rarest piece that you could possibly think of that, that just nobody's going to be... You, you don't think anyone will probably ever find... I mean, it's probably one of the 12 inches, right? Or the one of the... At least the ones that you had mentioned when yeah. you were DJing? Yeah. I would think so. I mean, like, honestly, I, hmm, I mean, I mentioned Spinal Tap Christmas with the Devil. I think that's pretty rare. Yeah. Um, I think that this, I'm actually looking at this last little batch of seven inches. I mean, I have the the seven inch of um, Transmission by Joy Division. That's oh my pretty God. obscure. My Joy Division Flexi Disc. This Minor Threat. In My Eyes, 7-inch on red vinyl. I think that's pretty obscure. Oh, I love it. Uh, my New Order, Temptation, 7-inch. But uh, in, So these are all like original like, factory records pressing then? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. The, <laughs> I'm trying to think what, like, honestly, because I'm not a crazy vinyl collector, like, something that seems really obscure to me, like, my friend... James Carrier, who is a crazy vinyl collector, he would probably like think that some of what I think is obscure is like banal and commonplace, and <laughs> some stuff that I think might be banal, he actually would say is quite obscure. So, yeah. unfortunately, like, I don't know enough. I mean, there are some there are some things in there that are obscure just by the fact that only one or two were made. Like, there's what I mean is like test pressing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, in the '80s and the '90s. I would you'd go to record stores, and people at record companies would sell test pressings, mm -hmm. you know. And so I had some like early Run DMC. I think like one of the first Run DMC singles. There's a test pressing in there. Um, some of my test pressings, where there literally is only one in the entire world. Yeah, yeah. So I guess in terms of obscurity one is about <laughs> obscure as it can get i think so yeah but it's it's interesting i just just looking back um even just this little blurb from reverb had me remind it just reminded me of um simon reynolds uh retromania this book that he oh god i think it's like six or seven years old now at this point but he spends a great deal talking about the collectors of the 80s and 90s that would uh scour all these just uh, just random shops from like from their travels a lot of them were djs a lot of them were just collectors but mostly how they would f like find these really obscure artists that nobody's ever heard of at these weird bizarre shops and all would you say a lot of these records are in, in a, were found in a very similar approach oftentimes yes yeah um and as a result there are a lot there's some records in there that are just obscure to the point of worthlessness you know like they're they're totally obscure but no one would want them because i bought them to try and sample them and couldn't find anything good to sample yeah, yeah. um but it does it, it it's 
so to your point about like each record being sort of like you know a snapshot and like an emotional totem but there's also the fact that every single record I'm selling involved I had to I had to go out and hunt it down yeah yeah. And so when I think of that cumulatively, the amount of time involved, and mm-hmm. you know, like if you think like you could even even generalize and say like let's say each record is is thirty minutes of my life. Yeah. You know, some would be a lot more, some would be a lot less, but let's say on average, like each single, each record, each album is thirty minutes, and I suppose and if you're selling a couple thousand, you know, it's like you're not just selling like music and vinyl, you're selling like this huge accumulation of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and cause the amount of time I'm sure you've had this experience of like, you know, going to an obscure record store somewhere, flipping through all the sort of like dusty record bins, you know, and that before back in the yield and days, you could never listen to a record before you bought it. No. Yeah. You know? And so you'd almost have to try and develop this sixth, sense of like what would the record sound like even though you've never heard it yeah and so you would you know you would look at the label you would see what other records were around it like it's almost like forensics yeah oh totally um and then you take it home and sometimes you'd be rewarded and you'd have an absolute gem and sometimes you'd realize you'd made a huge mistake and you just you know wasted five or six precious dollars you know on a piece on a piece of vinyl you could never play yeah yeah. And that was kind of fun though. I mean, I, 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 for me, it was more of like CDs growing up just, uh, in, in that respect because, oh God, yeah, there were so many times I would come home and it would just be a dud, but I would never, I would never lose, I would never like get rid of them. You know, I would still hold on to them mm-hmm. for some reason. And I, I'd, so, you know, and I would eventually move or go somewhere else there. I would look back on the collection and be like, why the hell do I have the soundtrack to Twister? Or like, I don't know. It was just like random yeah. thing, you know, like, although I, I don't feel like I've ever been embarrassed by any of my purchases, you know? And I wondered if oh, that... I have, oh, there's some in there that I am. <laughs> I should be embarrassed of if I had any sense of remaining shame, yeah. I would be yeah. really. And I think it's in there. It's a CD. Um, so in the mid nineties, my friend fancy and I, and he got his name cause he looks like a rat. Um, he, and I started throwing slow dance parties. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't know where we got this idea, but we decided to start throwing slow dance parties. It was like 96 or 97. Mm-hmm. And so we had a few of them, and they were really fun. But what we had to go out and find, we, we would only play slow dance music. You know, yeah. nothing, that, nothing, no songs that weren't appropriate for the end of the prom. Mm-hmm. So, so I actually bought a Celine Dion CD because it had, it was like, <laughs> an EP that had my heart will go on the theme from beauty and the beast and like some other songs. Oh, nice. <laughs> and so, yeah, I was the proud owner of a Celine Dion EP that I could play at our slow dance party. That's great. And that's, and that's a perfect time around that, you know, I mean, God, 96, 96, 97, that was right when, uh, Right for Titanic. Um, oh my God. Yeah. Well, I guess the the last thing I want to ask then is, you know, for over thirty years, the you know the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, which is where the money is going to, you've worked with them for a while, and you've said that the vegan diet, you know, if if everyone would go on it, it would you know solve the host of the world's problems overnight. And I just wanted to know, like, what are some of the biggest problems that you think like like could easily conquer? You know, like it just if just well, 
I mean, specifically germane to what they do is healthcare costs. Mm, okay. You know, Har- Harvard Medical released a report, I think last year, where they said that 95% of our healthcare costs are lifestyle related. Yeah. And of course, that involves, you know, car accidents and opiate addiction and cigarette smoking. But they said that at least 75% is relatable to diet. Yeah. So the fact that, you know, like we subsidize food that is bad for us, and in the process, we make ourselves sick and we have to spend trillions of dollars, you know, like healing these unnecessary illnesses. So that's one thing. But also, like in the animal rights world, we think of animal rights activism as being like the Swiss army knife of activism because it does so many things. Mm-hmm. You know, like you don't just save animals, but like you save people. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that 45% of climate change is directly and indirectly a result of animal agriculture and 95% of rainforest deforestation and 75% of antibiotic resistance and 50% of ocean acidification, all these things come from animal agriculture, which we subsidize. I mean, that's the real kick in the teeth is like it's this whole industry that destroys animals, destroys the environment, destroys our health, and our tax dollars subsidize it. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, it's really my life's work is activism. Like, yeah. I love making music. I love doing these other things. But, like, you know, if you held a gun to my head and said I had to choose between music and activism, I would just have to, as much as I love music, I would have to choose activism. Well, I think this is an amazing symbiotic relationship that you got here. And I think this is an awesome project. And, you know, in a world where obviously our politicians don't care about this stuff, it's nice to know that we got, you know, the musicians and the talent to be able to back it up. So thank you very much. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing how this project uh, unfolds and hopefully I will be able to pick up a few of them. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, thanks. And then next, the, what I'm selling next is my drum, mach- drum machine collection. Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, now I won't have to really get a loan. So um. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know how expensive those will be, but that's the only thing that makes that special is I do have the world's largest collection of analog drum machines. And I'm pretty sure there, you've just turned a bunch of people's heads when we run this. <laughs> so okay. yeah, we'll definitely be looking forward to that for sure. Uh, well, okay, good. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah, it was a real pleasure talking to you. No, absolutely. Have a good one. Okay, thanks again. Bye. Bye. Here on Consequence of Sound, the podcast, we put out album review three times a week, where our best writers give a critical eye to the latest releases. And this feed is also host to special programming like this, where we go even deeper. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review this series, Consequence of Sound, on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Or hey, share it with a friend or on social media. It helps make sure we can keep dishing out our music journalism in audio form. You can also follow Consequence of Sound and the Consequence Podcast Network on Facebook. And be sure to check out our other music, movie, and television podcasts. Head to consequenceofsound.net to explore all of our series. Thanks so much for listening. Consequence Podcast Network.